Hi folks, I hope you're having a pleasant start to the week here. My guest today is Ryan Cochran. He's a PhD student studying synthetic biology and specifically looking at algae and how to do whole mitochondria genome transformation into algae. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, well, that's okay, because we're gonna really get into it into this episode. For instance, I didn't know mitochondria has its own DNA, and I didn't know that the mitochondria splits separately from the cell itself. And uh, and so probably some of you have heard of mitochondria back in your middle school or, or high school biology days and know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. But imagine if you could get control over the functions of mitochondria. Since mitochondria plays such an important role in the metabolism and the function of the cell, if you can gain a mastery over mitochondrial DNA, you can get the, D the cell to, to produce really valuable things in a way that makes it uh, more commercially viable um, and is a little bit less complicated than when trying to do the same thing through nuclear DNA. So we really got into it. Ryan is incredibly knowledgeable, obviously, studying uh, studying genetic engineering and synthetic biology at such a deep level. It's really a privilege of mine to be able to, to pick his brain about my journey in learning how to genetic engineer fungi. And so I learned a lot from this episode. I learned a lot about algae as well. Algae is really gaining a lot of popularity in the biotech community and, and, and amongst DIYers as well, because it's a pretty easy organism to to grow and uh, it's really just another interesting organism to look at and to consider when you're thinking about where to focus your energy so it's pretty cool to learn about this other organism and then make all of these connections between algae and then the fungi that i'm learning how to engineer so we really geeked out on this episode i enjoyed it uh, and I think that you're going to really learn a lot about this stuff too. So thanks again to Ryan. And uh, without further ado, Ryan Cochran. Ryan, thanks for mu so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to finally get to, a chance to speak with you after some back and forth on social media and email. So my understanding is you're studying synthetic biology right now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm at the University of Western Ontario here in London, Canada, London, Ontario. And I work under the supervision of Dr. Bogomil Karish and David Edgel. Uh, both of them have varying degrees of synthetic biology background, but both have recently transitioned their lab focuses in that direction, I feel like. Specifically, uh, I work in the, the Karish lab mainly. Karish lab. And, and we focus on whole genome engineering or innovative strategies for developing innovative strategies for whole genome engineering. Uh, and I work with two different microalgae, and specifically their mitochondrial genomes. And so the focus of my thesis mainly up to this point has been cloning those genomes and developing a platform for engineering them. Okay, cool. I mean, well, I definitely want to get into a lot of that because you threw around a lot of words that I'm not super familiar with quite yet. So, <laughs> I, yeah, very. <laughs> How many? Uh, so you're you're going for your PhD. Um, yes. What what year? Or how far into that process are you currently? So I'm in my fourth year now. Uh, Is that the final year or could it take a little bit longer? So with a direct entry PhD, it's typically four years. Uh, with that kind of route, you're looking at somebody who already has some research in the lab and familiarity with their project before they begin the program. And then they jump right in and hit their three chapters out kind of deal. 
I took uh, a non-direct entry. So I started as a master's student. And after your first one or two years, you take this qualifying exam to transfer into the PhD program. But that comes with an additional year of schooling. And so I would typically end on a fifth year. So I have one more year after this. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're making pretty good progress. You're just about done. Um, yeah, we're, we're closing in on the end for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really cool. And I, I think that uh, I wanted to ask you about one of your publications, because I think I came across maybe a paper or two that you had recently published. Yeah, I have two different manuscripts, one for each mitochondrial genome of two different algae, one being Phyllodactylum tricornidum and one uh, Thalassera pseudonina. Okay. <laughs> so there's, it's just two different species names. That's all. Yeah, yeah, Both yeah, are yeah. diatoms. Yeah. I, I, we, de we definitely will touch on the technical stuff because I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to just kind of go back into your journey of how you arrived to where you're at today. Did you always know you wanted to do synthetic biology or how did you find out about it? Yeah. Uh, so I didn't go into university thinking I'd be going into synthetic biology or anything by any means. In high school, I kind of just wanted to pick the most difficult program I could find, which I had interest in. And so I had originally applied for like neuroscience and that eventually transitioned into like a physiology and pharmacology degree and then an interdisciplinary medical sciences. So it's kind of the program touches on many different aspects of medical science. And one that really caught my interest was biochemistry. And so I went to the graduate student night where they recruit students locally. And I was the only one who showed up that year. <laughs> and so I met my, my co-supervisor, Dave, who seemed to like me a little bit and told me to apply for grad school. And so I did, and I ended up with him. And uh, he introduced me to Bogomil Karish, who was working in his lab at the time. He wasn't even hired as a PI. And so Bogomil was super enthusiastic about synthetic biology. Uh, he actually had just came back from California, well, not just came back a year or two, but his most recent position was at JCVI, the Craig Venter Institute in California. And so he had already had a, a big grasp on synthetic biology. He was very much into it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And for people who don't know, because I hear a lot of words in synthetic biology used interchangeably. I hear genetic engineering, I hear synthetic biology, and then biochemistry, which is sort of more larger encompassing that, that yeah. those things roll into. What, is, what are all of those things for people who don't, who've never heard of genetic engineering, or maybe they heard of it, but they're not really sure what it is. How, how would you explain it to them? Yeah, so genetic engineering, I would say, is writing new blueprints for the cell to change what the cells are doing in, in useful ways and innovative ways. And synthetic biology, I think, by extension, is, is refactoring or repurposing existing biological tools that you can find in different microorganisms and then putting them in positions which you can leverage for industrial purposes. I, I would call that synthetic biology. What are some common applications that people may not be aware of today of where genetic engineering or synthetic biology are being used in our everyday lives? Yeah, I think the, the fastest growing industry, at least, uh, or the fastest growing industry globally, I would say, is agriculture. That's where the most predicted uh, gains are going to be. Uh, there's many different places it's used that people don't typically think of, like textiles, for instance. Uh, even these algae I work with, they, they have these silica walls, and it's also called uh, diametaceous earth. You can use them as filters kind of thing, uh, nanotechnologies and things like this. 
So, so you said in agriculture and in textiles, what like do you have any specific examples in mind of how how it's being used in those two industries? Yeah. So, if in agriculture you can use it to produce medicines in crops, and you can isolate those medicines out. Like uh, what? For, do you have like like an example, like aspirin? Yeah, so, or? <laughs> so, so there's there's this a, a great historic example would be golden rice where they engineered rice with vitamin E and uh, it was a humanity project. And so it, it allowed people that were deficient in that, that mineral vitamin. So uh, rice naturally yeah. doesn't produce a lot of vitamin E and, yeah, exactly. and it's consumed largely in a, in a large part of the world where some of the largest populations are. So if you yeah. can get uh, additional vitamin E growing in the rice, you can solve this nutritional issue. So like generally speaking, how does someone do that? I, I think that's the missing piece that a lot of people who don't come from the microbiology world or biochemistry world don't really like, it seems magical. Okay. How do you get rice to suddenly produce more vitamin E? It is kind of magical, but uh, <laughs> so, so you can identify the proteins responsible in a, a cell that can naturally produce vitamin E. And once you identify those proteins, you can relate them to a specific gene in the DNA responsible for this pathway. And you can take that pathway out of the cell and put it into a, a more useful cell, like a bacteria, like E. coli, which is easy to produce in the lab and grow up at scale and produce a lot of these things. Or, for instance, rice in this case. That's really interesting. So it, synthetic biology is really looking at, like, say you target a, a, a specific compound that you want to have an organism produce. You can go look at other organisms that are really efficient at producing that compound of interest and kind of look at their DNA and go, oh, they have these instructions that they've evolved over time to be really efficient at producing, say, vitamin E. I can just take those genes out and put them in rice, for example. A hundred percent. And then you can even look at proteins that are optimized for like different temperatures or conditions like pH. And so you can find ones that would be optimal for growing at the temperature rice would typically grow at, right? Yeah. So you can optimize for these different conditions, which just makes it so useful. That's, that's really cool. And I, that's actually what drew me to genetic engineering because I was just fascinated by this idea that I could take certain genes out of organisms that have evolved to be really good at doing certain things and then use that to transfer them into other organisms to, to kind of complement or uh, bring out the, those potentials in other organisms because every organism is sort of evolved to do different things really, really well. So if you can take the best of both worlds and put them together, then that's a lot of power. Yes. I, I agree completely with what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's kind of incredible. It's like uh, Jurassic park is, <laughs> is finally a reality in a way, but uh, a little ways off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's really cool. Have you, have you thought about like where you're given that you only have a year left? What's mm -hmm. next for you after school? Have you thought about that? Do you want to start a business or do you? I, I feel like uh, my, my skills lead me most towards a, a startup kind of environment, but there's, there's a lot on the table and I'm still kind of figuring that transition out. Yeah. Ways out. What, what, what excites you about like, what you want to achieve in your career. Do you have some general ideas of like things that no matter what opportunity direction you go, you, you definitely want to do these things. Yeah. I, I definitely want to see LG become a, a platform for 
uh, nutraceuticals or as a food source and kind of as a sustainable food source that could feed the world. That would be my dream come true. <laughs> wow. Okay. You know what I love about people in biology is they're very mission driven and want to do something good for the world. And I like that, you know, for me, that's a, a breath of fresh air because I come from a finance, fintech, financial technology world or software engineering world. We're, we're just, not that you can't do amazing things and there are incredible things that we're using the technology for, but in software development, we spend so much time in our heads looking at bits and bytes and just writing code. That we're kind of multiple layers removed from the impact of of what our work does on the average person's day-to-day life. And that's one thing I like about biotech is you're so much closer to life and things that can have a meaningful impact on how we as a species live our lives here on earth. Yeah. Also the, the community in general is just so receptive to each other and so collaborative that it's kind of amazing. You can meet people so easily and everybody is just amazed at what's possible and what others are doing because everybody's project is so cool in their own way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get that a lot too because, well, I just I just did my first transformation of E. coli, which probably for you, you could do that in your sleep, but I just did it from my home lab here, no training or anything. And I, I hadn't even held a pipette six months ago. So <laughs> yeah, I was watching your online Instagram of your transformation experiments. It was very entertaining. <laughs> so th- that was pretty awesome. And I shared it on LinkedIn and I had all of these scientists who had been working for decades start to message me and be like, hey, I'm a hardcore genetic engineer. If you need help with anything, I love what you're doing. And that's just something that's never really happened to me in, in uh, software development before. And I think probably because there is that sort of underlying ethos or mission to to do something good for the world. Yeah, I was I was very excited when I came across your page because I think that's relatively new is is these DIY or even like professionals uh starting to record their activities or their progress and it's kind of better than a vlog series in a way, you know? Oh, interesting. You like it more than like sitting down and watching like a full like a longer format blog yeah it's like you're doing your experiments and you hit us with an update and it's it's very cool to see that in time progress okay well that's good feedback for me and i I think that probably fits in line with where social media is headed it's very much like spontaneous like quick hits of dopamine yeah exactly (laughs) like yeah we want to just see the quick steps that you do and then the results and so that's you take all the hard work out of it for us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's pretty cool. Um, so algae, I, I mean, well, before we go into algae and the technical stuff, DIY bio, did you, before like running across my stuff and, and probably other people's Instagram, like have you, and I don't know what it's like in Canada either, but is there a DIY bio movement there or have you heard anything about it? Do you have any perceptions? Of, I mean, I have my own. Like, there's definitely people who are well-known in DIY bio that I that I have some opinions about. But I'm curious to hear what your what your opinions are about the space, what you like about it, some of the concerns you might have if you have any. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in general, I'm pretty excited at what's possible and the general the general public's perception of what's happening and getting involved and being part of that conversation. 
I've came across a couple groups in the past. There's a group in the States called BioBlaze, I've heard of. Okay. And then here in my local community, there's the iGEM teams. Mm. And so we have one of those in our school and they go to different conferences and explain their research and stuff. So I think in general, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of excitement. Here in Canada, also the government is getting very excited about SynBio and there's different groups trying to push that uh, narrative. So it's good to see. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, not, I've not heard of the BioBlaze, I think you, you mentioned, yeah. but I'll have to check them out. Um, one thing I noticed, uh, I've noticed about Canada, because one of the sort of sidebar areas of research, since I study fungi mostly, that's kind of like my primary organism that I, that I like to focus on. Yeah. Um, there is a rise of support and just general public awareness around the potential for psychedelics in treatment. And Canada seems to be much further ahead of the U.S. in this area because there's a lot of actually new psychedelic companies and like people that have engineered yeast to produce psilocybin, which is the primary active ingredient from uh, Psilocybe cubensis. Yeah. Have you had any exposure to that world at all? Um, are, are you aware of any sort of policy differences between the U.S. and Canada that brings, like, maybe some, there's some lessons, where I'm getting at is, like, maybe there's some lessons we can learn here in the U.S. about changing our policy or the way that we work to, to drive that innovation here in a way that Canada does. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with, with Canada's position on, like, psilocybin or anything. I feel like the public perception is relatively laxed. Uh, we recently legalized marijuana and I know of different companies that are producing THC and like uh, yeast and things like that. So I, I don't think it's too far off. No. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What about, I don't know what the differences are and maybe you don't either. So forgive me yeah. if I'm asking a bunch of stuff that's outside of your, your <laughs> area of expertise, but I've heard that getting a not a new drug to market in the, in the U S it's, it's a very expensive and cumbersome ordeal is it easier in Canada do you or do you guys kind of see the same sort of I, hurdles and barriers to entry I I assume it's it's the same if or very similar I know in the states it, it costs a couple billion dollars to get a, a drug through clinical trials and things like that but in, in terms of Canada we have the regulatory board health Canada which we have to go through and I assume if you're going to go through that process, you might as well go through the state's process because the, the yields are going to be uh, Get access to exponential the market here. Yeah, yeah. Make, makes a lot of sense. So tell me about algae because algae is an interesting organism. I know nothing about algae, but I've noticed that in the DIY bio space that it's growing in popularity. There seem to be a lot of potential uses for algae from alternative foods to I've even seen some really amazing blue dyes produced with algae as well. Yeah. So, to, you know, can you give us a high level overview of like, what the heck is algae and why is this an interesting organism to study? Yeah. So algae come in, in two main big varieties. You have your seaweeds and then your, your microorganisms, which are just single celled algal cells. Uh, I work with the, the single cell. So I have more uh, knowledge on those. They're a very diverse class of organisms. Uh, many, many, there's estimates of hundreds of thousands of species. And 
the LG I work with up to 35 to 50% of its genes, uh, the ones that encode the proteins for different functions have unknown uh, function related to them. So it's oh. this huge Pandora's box of what's capable and what don't we know yet and what can we utilize. And beyond that, the perspective for DIY bio is they're very or relatively easy to work with. They're a bit slower than different uh, model organisms like bacteria or yeast. Uh, for instance, with yeast, you're working on the time scale of a doubling every hour and a half of the cells from one to two. With the algae, you're looking at every 24 hours. So you have to kind of plan your experiments a bit more and, and what you're doing, uh, be more a little cognizant, I'd say. Yeah, that, it kind of reminds me of, of fungi in, in that way. You know, I started working with culturing fungi and you know, unless you're working with certain molds, um, asco, ascomycota, those are t typically pretty fast growing. But by and large, a lot of fungi are, are kind of slow to colonize and grow on just plain media, regular like PDA or MEA media. But then when I started doing E. coli, like things started to move much quicker, much, much quicker. And, and so for me, starting with fungi and then doing E. coli, Actually, E. coli seems a lot easier because it, things move so much quicker. I'd agree, yeah. Uh, we, we worked in 2017, 2018 with a, a fungus called Meshnikovia, and we were trying to develop a transformation protocol for it because one of the researchers at our university, it was a collaborative effort, he discovered this specific strain. Uh, it turned out that it used an alternative genetic code, so the language it was using compared to other cells was different by a, a couple... Uh, letters and so wow. we had to recode all of our selection markers for it to be successful wow wow so i i would love to dig into that because all of the work that i'm doing right now with transforming e coli i'm getting ready to do my first mini prep kit for people who are experienced they're like oh they're probably rolling their eyes because they do this stuff every day in their sleep but <laughs> um i'm working my way up to you know i have captured probably 50 50 different species of mold and fungi from my local environment. Uh, there's not a lot of trans published transformations of filamentous fungi. And so that, that means there's a lot of opportunity to a lot of opportunity for research and to sort of be on the cutting edge of figuring out how do I get exogenous DNA into these organisms? Cause no one's really like worked on this. And there's there seems to be lot, like several different approaches from the the polyethylene glycol approach. There's um, electroporation, kind of shock the exogenous DNA into the cell, and then there's the agrobacteria mediated approach. Right. That's Given that you worked on that project, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit because I'm leaning towards the using the agrobacteria approach to mm -hmm. like. To, to start to make headway into this area. Do you have any thoughts on which like pros and cons with those approaches and which one would be good to start with? So my supervisor would probably murder me if I didn't say conjugation using agrobacterium would not be your way to go. That's kind of our lab specialty and what was his uh, claim to fame, I guess. So when he worked at the Craig Venter Institute, he developed the, a protocol where bacterial conjugation to the LG cell uh, for the first time as a transformation method. And so 
if I didn't say trying to use conjugation to first transform these yeast cells, or not yeast cells, sorry, uh, fungal cells, then I'd probably be a little off base. Is that, uh, so that's the first time I've heard the word conjugation in this context. Okay. Um, is that using the agrobacteria to tran transfect the, uh, the fungal cells? Yeah, so the agrobacterium, it, it harbors a plasmid, which contains all the proteins required to move the plasmid, which is just a, a piece of DNA that's out, outside of the chromosome from the donor cell, which is the agrobacterium, to your fungal recipient cell. And so it contains the genes to create this pillus, which reaches out and touches the, the recipient cell and brings them into contact, creating like a cell aggregate and allowing for this DNA transfer to occur. That's pretty so, cool. And that's... that that whole process is called bacterial conjugation. Okay, cool. So that that's that's good for me to have those keywords because that lets me, when I'm doing searches for papers, to know what to type right. in. And um, then to add to that complexity, uh, there's different conjugative plasmids, which are those uh, extrachromal DNA fragments. Uh, they're circularized inside the cell. And they have different machineries for causing this process to happen, which... Uh, leads to different groupings of them called incompatibility families. Because if you try to have put two of the plasmids that are incompatible together, then only one can kind of be replicated and moved. Oh, interesting. So you really touched on something that I haven't figured out yet, but I'm, it's, it's something that I need to figure out, which is like what, let's say I, I take one of these and I have, I have cultures all, all around me here. Um, yeah. This, <laughs> this is a, uh, uh, this is a Aspergillus flavus, oh, and, nice. and this is actually probably I would consider one of the model organisms because Aspergillus, there's a lot of papers on doing transformations in Aspergillus. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of walk through sort of a technical problem, and maybe you can at least kind of help me and then other people who are listening kind of figure out how do I attack this problem. You know, we're talking about doing a transformation. We're talking about taking these these circular pieces of DNA and transferring them from bacteria into the fungal cell walls and kind of just using the natural bacteria's natural mechanisms for, for uh, cloning itself and produce and, and making multiple copies of that plasmid DNA. And then, and as you said, the plasmid DNA is encoded with special proteins that allow it to reach out and transfer itself over to the fungal cells. Yeah. How do I go about, Let's say I want to do a transformation of a fungi that's not been published. How do I find a plasmid DNA that will work for trying to do that transformation? Like what's, I think it's called a backbone. How do I find a yeah. backbone that has a good probability of working? And, and in the beginning, all I want to do is maybe just do GFP to one of these, one of these new species that hasn't had any documented, documented uh, transformations. Right. But, so that, that whole process is called uh, domesticating the, the organism, making it uh, easily genetically engineerable. And there, there's a couple problems that you'll, you'll have to overcome. First is identifying some key components of that backbone that will allow it to be stably maintained, uh, replicated, and propagated in your host organism, where you're trying to get that DNA to go. Uh, so the first is like a, a centromere. So... Uh, allowing it to be segregated between cells, uh, origin of replication, so uh, a specific DNA sequence that allows that 
DNA fragment that you're putting into the donor or recipient cell uh, to be replicated, as well as a selectable marker. So that is like an antibiotic resistance or GFP, like you said, which is a positive selective marker where you can observe it instead of selecting against ones that don't contain that DNA. And in order to express that GFP, you need a promoter and terminator that would be recognized by it. And so I think the easiest way to get at those elements is finding the most closely related species that has been transformed or with a backbone and start there and then work backwards and try to yeah, mine the genetic information for, for likely sequences you could use. That, that, that's what I was planning to do. There's other fruit body bearing uh, transformations that have been done on mm -hmm. things like the button mushroom, for example. Um, yeah. So if I have another fruit body bearing mushroom and that hasn't had anything documented in terms of the transformation, it would, it would make sense to use a construct very similar to what's already been done to that similar species, even if it's, an, it's a totally different species. Yeah. And I've even noticed that like, even for cross-species transformation, there's still a lot of overlap. Like many of the transformations are using some of the same promoters that are in Aspergillus, which are just like a totally different species as well. So there yeah. does seem to be some transferability in the species in terms of the um, the underlying components that you can use to to make the machinery work. Um, one yeah, question. Uh, oh, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, oh, go for it. Uh, if I could just give you a quick example of, of when my PI was domesticate or making these transformation backbones for P. tricornidum, the algae, he, he cloned one of the whole chromosomes in pieces with his backbone that he used to clone it in uh, S. yeast. And so with walking down the chromosome, he was looking for the genetic elements that would allow for the replication and segregation of that, that uh, plasmid being transferred to the recipient, which is P. tricornidum. And by doing that, he actually found that the centromere he was using to clone in yeast, his negative control was the one of the few that were actually working resulting in transformants wow is that process published in a paper or any any place yes i can link that to you it is the uh creating designer uh, conjugation with designer that'd be kind of cool team paper and i know it's on algae but this idea of kind of walking through the chromos there's a strategy here where at, at the heart of every organism, there's a bunch of DNA inside of chromosomes. There's, there are some systematic ways that you can invoke different sections of the, of the, the genetic material and test what, they, what it is that they do. And I think when, when I'm working on my own research here of like taking one of these species that hasn't been um, uh, did you call it domesticated? I think is what you said. <laughs> they haven't been. I'm learning the terminology as we go. They haven't been domesticated. I think that's probably part of the work that would end up being going in my own published research, which is this ex exploratory um, work to kind of figure out, you know, what unique characteristics about this organism exist that that play a role in successful transformations of the organism. Yeah. And so those techniques are are published. People have done, done things like that. It's helpful for me to go and read and uh, piggyback on some of the work that they've done. Do you find doing DIY bio, you have any trouble accessing those articles or anything like that? 
Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So PubMed from the NCBI database has a lot of stuff, but frankly, I'm doing what a lot of DIY bio people do, and that's using SciHub to, okay. to find papers and read them. And in the beginning, when I first started looking and reading these papers, it was all like a foreign language to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just like Everything in life, when you expose yourself to something that's completely foreign over and over and over again, these patterns begin to emerge. And I've even noticed that if I'll, I'll go pretty heavy in doing research and reading papers, really trying to read it critically and understand what it is and a lot of looking up terms and bringing that back to my reading to try to make sense of what it is that I'm reading. And then I'll take a break. I'll take a break because I think what happens is that new information integrates in the mind kind of just sits there. And when I come back and read the paper, it, it makes a lot more sense after yeah. having spent some time. <clears throat> and pe so people don't know, like research papers are, they have a very similar layout. There's usually an introduction. There's usually like a summary of the findings. Then there's a result or a, a tools and methodology section, which actually walks you through the, exactly the what steps, was done. exactly what was done, setting up the experiment, what strains were used, what reagents were used, what tool, what protocols were used. And I think the challenge for, for DIYers is there's a lot of like, there's a lot of pointers to other papers. And mm -hmm. so that can be difficult to keep track of because it, like you'll re be reading a paper on a transformation and it'll say we used Wang 2016's protocol. You're like, okay, then you got to go <laughs> click on Wang and then you read Wang's and it's a totally different context. And then he has, or that paper has like 50 different references out to some other place. Right. So like part of the work is like coalescing all of these information sources into like a singular uh, place. Yeah. And also I think a challenge for DIYers, you don't know in the beginning how important some components are and what, right. what areas can you make trade-offs with? You know, I'm in, I'm in a less than ideal setting here. I'm not, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not in a clean room by any means. So I have to take very special care to, uh, to not do... contaminate all your samples and things like this. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I, I'm trying to do things DIY, which means I'm not using always lab grade reagents. Um, and so it can be done, but that's part of the, that's part of the fun, but also part of the challenge of doing things DIY style is you, you know, you can, you can waste a lot of time pretty easily because you don't have like that professional guidance or mentor that's, that's you know one yeah. of the trade-offs on the other hand you have this awesome opportunity to do science that is not being done by a lot of people in this sort of fashion and the DIYers the amateur community because they're under those constraints they often will encounter really clever ways to do things that might not have ever been considered in a, in a more formal lab setting I think all of those things working together really help progress science forward and make it more accessible to people. I, I think another big thing with the DIY is, is you have kind of total freedom on whatever you want to research or whatever species. It doesn't matter if somebody like a funding agency doesn't think it's relevant or is ever going to give money back to society. And you can really look at whatever you want and then show them that it's relevant. hundred <laughs> percent. And that's, that's a blessing and a curse <laughs> because mm -hmm. the world is so wide and it's like hard to stay focused on one particular lane. Um, yeah. I've, you know, but that's part of the learning journey. You know, there's a whole strategy around how to manage that. 
one thing I wanted to go back into is you talked about the plasma needing a origin of replication, and that's something people will often see when they're looking up like plasma maps, or they start to think about constructing their own DNA plasma that they want to put into another organism. It has this section called the origin of replication, which is kind of what tells the organism, gives you the, it taps into the organism's own mechanism for consuming that DNA and replicating it. Is that right? Is that a good way to say it? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a sequence. It's a genetic sequence recognized by proteins in the organism, which allow it to be maintained and replicated uh, faithfully across generations. So my question is, if I'm moving a plasma DNA from agrobacteria into fungi cells, do I need two origins of replication there? So it, it depends on on your experimental design, there's different ways to go about it. I think with agrobacterium, uh, you have what are called border sequences beside the construct that you want to put into your recipient cell. And so the genetic machinery on the plasmid will cut out that uh, sequence to be transferred. And then that sequence can actually integrate into the, the existing chromosomes. Uh, for instance, your, your fungi of interest. interest. And so that could be stably maintained by hijacking off of the machinery or the genetic elements already found in the chromosome. Ah, okay. Okay. So it's kind of a way of like hacking into it a little bit. There's, there's like advantages and disadvantages for chromosomal integration. And there's advantages and disadvantages of maintaining an episome or a plasmid in the recipient cell. Got it. Got it. So going back to algae, what, like, were you attracted to algae before you started to do the research and and to dedicate your education to it or did no, you find I found it? out about these things and I it took me forever to understand exactly what was going on I thought they were plant cells at first but they're very different from plant cells uh, they undergo endo endobiotic uh, or symbiotic relationships with different bacteria so they need they require bacteria to exist uh, oh, wow. their chloroplast for instance has evolved multiple times uh, it's by consuming other algae cells and maintaining their uh, chloroplast inside of another membrane. There's just so many different things about them that make them interesting and amazing. And that that's what made me attracted to them after I learned what they were. <laughs> when I think about algae, I think about when I was a kid, I'd have a fish tank and I always had to do the cleaning and, and to scrape off the algae around the that's edge. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I didn't know, and I just learned something now, is it, it there's actually bacteria in that water that's necessary for that algae to grow. Uh, yeah, what, they're actually relying on it for the vitamin B12. And that's the most expensive component that we put in our medias to grow them up. Interesting. So I don't know where that bacteria comes from, maybe the fish or something. It, it kind of like, or maybe just lives in the water or whatever, but yeah. it produces B12. It sort of metabolizes, I guess, metabolizes it and creates it. And then the algae is like, oh, hey, I need that B12. How does yeah. algae seem to just pop up into existence from, let's say like the fish tank? Are, are, are there algae cells everywhere like there are with fungi cells? They're, they're everywhere. There's, there's heterotrophic strains, so they just exist off of carbon sources, and they, they can live in, in swampy areas. They can live in the dirt. They can live in the water. Are they they're in the air? The I don't believe many are in the air. Because they're, they're eukaryotic cells, they're probably a little too heavy to be floating around very often. Got it. But, got it. So something... So I'm just thinking like the fish tank example, because I think mm -hmm. like for people who don't know about algae, that... that is probably pretty familiar to a lot of people is I got to, my fish tank keeps getting algae growth on it. 
where might the algae cells have come from in that case? So I, I would predict that they were just in the water source or from the, the marine life that you put into the tank. Got it. Or if you get some stones from the swamp or anything like that, or the lake, then they, they pop up. Uh, some of the algae are even actually bacterial cells called cyanobacteria. Oh, so, I see. So you can even have algae that are bacteria. Are they more closely related to bacteria than they are any other organism? So there's, there's a grouping of uh, algae called green algae, and that's the, the lineage that led to the land plants. So they, they're pretty related with land plants, but different algae oh. are closely related with different things. There's, it's such a diverse group of species that you can almost point in any direction. <laughs> that's really, really cool. And, and you said there's thousands of species of algae, and I wasn't aware of that. That's pretty cool. Um, what work is being done today to tap into the, the potential uses for algae? There's, there's tons of groups internationally working on, on different algae. Uh, there's one group I know of that's taking metagenomic DNA or uh, sequencing data. So this is they take a sample out of, for instance, the ocean. They extract DNA. They sequence it all. And then they just start uh, identifying species that haven't even been identified because they can't be cultured. So it's a way oh, of, okay. of mining all this information without uh, even ever seeing the species that you're getting it from. And how come they can't be cultured? Is it just because there's, there's things that are happening in nature that are very difficult to replicate in a, in a controlled setting? We, there's just different variables that we probably don't know or uh, essential nutrients or minerals that we're not adding into the typical medias we would use to culture things. Got it, got it. Because there is like fungi that's the same thing that there's lots of them. Many of them are very like tr different kinds of truffles, incredibly yeah. difficult to cultivate. That kind of drives the price up really high and, and right. kind of plays on the, uh, some of them even require that ants, like there's these special ants that build a an ant nest and they play a role in helping this fungi grow. And, and it's been impossible to, to cultivate this, uh, this one species because we don't yet know how, but the ants somehow play a role in creating the right environment for them. So that's pretty cool. Nature's pretty uh, incredible. There's, there's so many things out there that are yet to be identified or understood. And the chance that they'll be useful in biotechnology is so high. It's, it's a great opportunity for anybody getting in the field. And I think what you said with the metagenomic sequencing, that sounds very similar to the DNA barcoding stuff that I've been like embarking on with fungi and sharing uh, with my network where we're with fungi. What we're doing is we're looking at the small subunit section of the ribosomal DNA. Mm -hmm. And that has a, highly variable section in it that, or sorry, is a well-conserved uh, section in it that doesn't uh, changes subtly enough between species that you can make these link linkages between, and you can identify them, you can identify the species and you can ge like generally taxonomically um, figure out the distance between its, you know, other more distant species or even really closely related ones. Yeah, the ability to sort them out and kind of group them in a meaningful way. It's super helpful for sure. I know they also do that with like the mitochondrial ribosomes because they change so slowly as well. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. And what you're saying, like people going out and finding algae in the ocean, is that what's known as bioprospecting, where people are kind of going out and, and trying to find these new species or new characteristics? So that's a pretty unfamiliar term for me. Yeah, but... I, I've, I've seen a couple of people use it. And I, I think what it is, is people just going out into nature, trying to find new species or trying to find strains that have some unique characteristic about them that that could end up being useful. See, I think that's the dream. Get some government funding to go out into nature and find some very unique, interesting organisms and then just study them. That yeah, like go dream. into like a volcano, walking around the volcano and be like, oh, there's some algae growing right here by this vent. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like a ton of fun. So you're exploring algae and you kind of mentioned one of your goals was like perhaps use algae as an alternate food source. What makes algae kind of a prospect for that? So there's already nutraceutically, uh, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, they, they have many properties that are already healthy. So they have uh, different pigments, which help with cardiovascular health. They have uh, healthy fats. There's different possibilities to express things in these organisms and that's what makes them so beneficial as a food source, I think, as a potential food source. We're talking about one species in particular? So the species I work with, Phyllodactylum tricornidum, is uh, approved, I think, by Health Canada and FDA for consumption. But uh, in, in general, a lot of these algae, because they have such diverse metabolisms, they're, each ones kind of have unique traits that make them more useful than others. Interesting. And I didn't know that there were pigments that can impact the cardiovascular system. Yeah. Uh, I forget exactly what they're called. It, when I, I think pigment, I think of a cell that generates a, a color. Yeah. So this is the pigment that gives the cells a, a brown black color. Is that, is that melanin or is that some other uh, sort of pigment? Uh, I don't worry about it if you don't yeah. know it, but so it doesn't matter. Cause at the end of the day, pigment, a pigment is a chemical. It's a compound. Right. And so it, it, it has some uh, photospectral or optical changes when it hits interacts with light. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, and then apparently somehow that plays into our cardiovascular system. Um, yeah. I, I, I didn't read too much into it. I saw that that was one of the highlights with uh, this algae P tricornum. That's pretty cool. And you said that they have like a diverse uh, metabolism. Does that mean that they can feed on a v wide variety of different uh, substrates so what I mean by that is they have uh, different biochemical processes inside and those which would be not usually seen in, in things we're used to like animal cells. So like the, the ability to metabolize silica. So they have uh, biosilica integrated into their wall and gives us this glass structure, for instance, wow. in the algae diatoms. And that's the ones I work with. I mean, that sounds like, could we create a algae recycling plant and throw a bunch of glass in there and have the algae eat it? Right. The and theoretically? You could repurpose them for nanotechnologies because these, these biosilica walls are used to create uh, different symmetrical structures. If you oh, wow. look up some of these diatoms on, on Google Images, they have very uh, regular and symmetrical shapes and things that could be used for uh, moving liquids around and things like this. So you're saying potentially we could we could grow a lot of algae. They'll grow into this crystalline structure that we could, I mean, we, we might end up having algae-based bottles, for example. 
that could be very cool i should get my idea book and write this down <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that sounds, sounds awesome really interesting yeah I, I had no idea so we you like there's algae that will just take raw silica and then digest it and then produce uh so it has to be in the correct form for it to be able to uptake it and process it but yes they they form these structures in in these compartments inside the cell and they just push them towards the edge and when they divide they have these two half valves that separate and just get smaller and smaller until they uh make a, a large larger cell again go to a different state that's really cool that's something you know what thought that comes to my mind is when you're doing, when you're just sort of on the ancillary edges of DIY bio and hearing about some of the things that can be done, for example, there's plastic eating fungi and pl plastic eating yeah. bacteria, but then when you dig into it, you realize, okay, this is theoretically possible, but there are some constraints that make it difficult. It's got to be the right kind of plastic, and it's got to be like there are these parameters that end up making the feasibility of it still pretty challenging to today. Mm -hmm. And do you think like there's a lot of work, a lot of the work and research being done right now is trying to figure out what those parameters are to fine tune them so that you could really open up these applications? Certainly. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a big difference between the practicality of things and the, the theoretical. I think finding something out and thinking it could work versus actually uh, scaling something up and the problems that are associated with that. Are, are very challenging. And I think there's a lot of people in the community that are trying to standardize parts, things that can be moved between uh, systems and that are, have predictable functions to help with these things. But it, it's difficult to, for instance, engineer a pathway that contains many different components and you're trying to control how much of each component is present at a specific time or different toxicities that happen when you're trying to really express a protein at, to high levels inside the cell. There's, there's lots of problems and challenges uh, that come with making something uh, useful versus discovering if it's possible. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. One of the things that I hear VCs and life science investors talk about is helping make that transition between a researcher to a business person or startup making that easier and it, it, i kind of just wanted to get your feedback on that do you find you know i just find with with anything in life you can go really 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 deep into one specific area but then you kind of lose this other world that's kind of around you because you're so laser focused in deep into this one particular area then again if you pull out and you're too broad you're going to lose the clarity of having that focus in one area yeah do you it's think a difficult that, balance? Yeah, I was gonna say, is that something you think that other researchers like yourself are like struggle with, which is how do I how do I take this idea and transition that into a business? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about some like why those challenges exist and things that could be done potentially to help researchers make that transition. So at least from my perspective as a, a graduate student, the program that I had entered had a very large emphasis on making sure things are practical, practicable, as well as they give different courses like uh, translational research that help you kind of gear your research towards going as a startup avenue and what that kind of looks like and the steps you have to take and patent law, things like that. Uh, specifically, my supervisors 
are one of them has filed a couple different patents and the other had a startup which he had here based in london for a while called designer microbes incorporated and so i i have yeah right <laughs> i have some some supervisors that are very much uh focused on making things practical and useful that's great and so they they emphasize that throughout my my degree so far yeah so they're like when you're proposing doing a your research or something like that they're helping guide you towards something that might have some commercial viability at some point yes and specifically because i'm in the school of medicine and dentistry schulich here at uh, western university it's very much how are you going to relate this medically uh how is this going to be relevant to anybody medically yeah 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 can you talk a, a bit about the research you're currently engaged with right now yeah for sure uh so the overarching theme of my whole project was to develop this biotechnology to allow easy engineering and delivery of whole mitochondrial genomes in these two algae, uh, Phyllodactylum tricornum and Thalassiria pseudonana. And so the way I broke up my project was first I had to clone them and show that I could manipulate them and uh, use the model systems I was working with. And then the second is developing selectable markers and things to transform the mitochondria. Those, uh, those protocols. And then third is delivering a whole mitochondrial genome. Okay. And so I want to break something useful. Yeah. <laughs> I want to break this down because I think it will be helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm working on, uh, so at a high level, we're talking about moving DNA around, right? You're going to design yeah. some DNA and try to get it into these two species of algae. Yeah. How is, and I, when I think about this, I think about a, a plasmid construct, which has those key components that you mentioned before, origin replication, some sort of selection marker, maybe a visual marker as well, like GFP, and then maybe your, your multiple cloning site where you have your genes, gene or genes of interest kind of inserted into that. All right. How is that different than whole genome mitochondrial DNA? So, and, and what's the application of getting that? Like, what's the benefit of getting that into the algae? So the idea is if you could develop this technology to deliver a whole mitochondrial genome in, in a perfect world, very far away from now, we could build a cell from scratch and import this whole mitochondrial genome in and kickstart this eukaryotic cell up to be doing useful things. What's mitochondrial, what's a mitochondrial genome? Like, how's that different than regular DNA that might be found in the nucleus of a cell. Right. So the, the nuclear DNA is typically very large megabases on scale. The mitochondrial genomes are around 50 kilobases, 50,000 base pairs to 150, at least in the species that I'm working. Uh, there can be a much larger range if you look at things like plants and things like that. But specifically, And this is DNA that lives in the mitochondria of the cell? Yeah, so it exists inside the mitochondria. It's often associated with the inner membrane, and it has a higher ploidy than the nucleus. So what is ploidy? Is, <laughs> ploidy is the number of copies. So, oh, okay. So, so what, you can get more expression kind of thing. You can have 36 times the expression. So I don't, think people, I don't think a lot of people realize that DNA is found in different areas of the cell. I mean, certainly most people know there are two different kinds of cell with and without a, a nucleus. But there's also DNA in the mitochondria of the organism, which is sort of the powerhouse of, uh, that is used for metabolism, as you said. And that's obviously important in biotechnology because 
a lot of the applications are trying to get to tap into the cell's ability to produce these metabolites. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, can control that, you obviously can can do some pretty powerful things. Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, people know the mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell, but it does have additional functions like fatty acid metabolism, beta oxidation, which creates energy, uh, as well as amino acid synthesis, which is creating essential amino acids for the cell. There's the so there's multiple functions and uh, metabolisms which you can manipulate the mitochondria to affect the cell. How does the it, why does the DNA live in these two different places? You know, like yeah. it, it does it move from the nucleus? Because obviously, when I think of nuclear DNA, I think like that's a DNA that even encodes for the mitochondria itself. So, yeah, so when when does DNA end up in the mitochondria? The hypothesis of how the mitochondria came about was there was an archaeal uh, ancestor cell which engulfed. Uh, predicted an alpha proteobacterium. It doesn't really matter. Engulfs a small bacteria, which somehow escapes uh, degradation inside this cell and becomes uh, its own organelle. And then over a long period of time, these large pieces of its genome move to the nucleus and anything that's duplicated just gets rid of and keeps all the useful stuff. And eventually you get the system to import the proteins from the nucleus into the mitochondria and then you start developing these, these signals, these transit signals or localization signals to traffic proteins from the nucleus into the mitochondria. And so proteins which could not traffic remained in the mitochondria, as well as proteins which were important for regulating redox potential or acting as a scaffold for larger protein assembly. Uh, those types of genes remain inside the mitochondria. Wow. Okay. So when the cell is being formed and growing, does DNA, tr like, does it migrate from the nucleus into the mitochondria as the cell itself is being developed? No. So the, the cell, the nuclear DNA and mitochondria divide uh, separately. They, they communicate to each other in different ways, but the mitochondria divides uh, wow. by itself. Wow, wow, I had no idea. So is there some other process in place that's decoding the mitochondrial DNA? Something must be, something must, is the ribosome playing a role in that as well? So the, mitochond so the mitochondrial DNA has all the machinery required for transcription and translation. Wow. The expression of those genes uh, inside. And so my use, mind's blown. I had no idea. <laughs> they use a different uh, system as well. Like they use a bacterial ribosome compared to the eukaryotic one in the nucleus. Wow. Okay. So it's almost like its own like uh, proto nuclear, like proto nucleus like a, in, a way, in a way. It's like it's an organism within an organism. I like, yeah, I like to imagine as a very like strong, intense symbiotic relationship of like this pseudo organism living inside of another and so, and so the mitochondrial DNA has, in, like, I think of things in terms of code. So I might mm -hmm. say things like instruction set, right? Yeah. It has the ones and zeros, but it's really A, A T, Gs, and Cs. Mm -hmm. um, so that it has specific instructions that don't also exist in the nuclear uh, DNA? For the most part. For there's, the there's some cases where there's some existing in the nucleus and the mitochondria. Gotcha. It's, but it has a lot of instructions on how the mitochondria should, should perform and function. It maintains maybe 15 genes, at least oh. in my, my system. Okay. But importantly, they have uh, what I would say is like different operating systems. Oh, I see. Okay. So 
the means by which they express the mitochondrial genes and translate them would be similar but slightly different uh, than the nucleus. So is it still double-stranded? Yes. It's and it's, it's sometimes linear, uh, a lot of the time circular. Uh, there's different structures. Uh, Canidoplasts have these like interlacing rings and they have mini and maxi circles, what they're called. Okay. And it creates this chain mail kind of looking thing. Wow, cool. And so going back to the original question, now that we have like some context and understanding of what the heck's going on, why would we want to do whole genome insertion or transformation of, of a cell of its mitochondrial DNA? We want to have, you know, you said there's 15 genes. Does this give us a lot more control over the cell function? Right now, it's very difficult to manipulate the mitochondrial genomes. Uh, if you could do a whole mitochondrial genome delivery or even a replacement, removing the, uh, the one pre-existing there and replacing it with yours, you could, for instance, recode the genome to use different codons, the things that uh, are read. And so it's a kind of a form of biosafety, things that escape wouldn't really make much sense to the natural uh, life forms. And second, you could easily insert whole biosynthetic pathways. So I have my mitochondrial genome in uh, Cerevisia yeast and E. coli, and I can easily manipulate it and add, uh, say, 15 genes, and then move that whole molecule into the mitochondria, install it. And then the mitochondria, when you express things in organelles, you tend to get higher yields for different reasons. And so there's, there's a huge benefit to using the organelle. Uh, that's, so, that's so fascinating. I had no idea. So right now, the, a lot of the work is figuring out how to do that, the transformation into, in and out of mitochondrial DNA. Because it sounds like if you can kind of master that technique, you, you, the world opens up to you in terms of being able to harvest the cell's ability, its function, cell function. Yeah. And so it sounds like there's things that you can do right now by modifying the nuclear DNA, but maybe it's less efficient and, and more complicated than if you were just able to go directly into the organelle itself. Right. So like the, the mitochondria, it, it has some advantages like compartmentalization. So if you're expressing your pathway in there instead of the nucleus, you have less competing reactions with the cell and you're fighting for less substrates and stuff. Yeah. Additionally, you have higher concentrations of your proteins that are turning over your substrates into product because you're working with such a small compartment inside the mitochondria. Oh. And as I said, that ploidy, because you have multiple copies of it, you have multiple copies of your construct inside of there and multiple units of it being expressed. So you can get higher yields and at the same time, reducing that toxicity because the rest of the cell doesn't see these proteins. Wow, that's pretty cool. I probably at some point in the next generation will will probably be some transformation of both so that you could just really maximize both systems in tandem with it with one another. I, I hope in the future we can we can make a, a whole eukaryotic cell from nothing. And well yeah all these genomes. And, that, and you mentioned that's where you're going. And I, I have read about a couple of efforts to build a cell, mm -hmm. which is like let's deconstruct the components of a cell and figure out how to create an artificial cell. It sounds like that's where we're headed. Yeah, I went to a, a couple conferences in America called the Build a Cell, uh, and That's they, where I heard of it. yeah, they 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 work on what are the limitations and challenges, and which of those can we tackle short term, mid term, and long term kind of thing, 
and then how can we get money from governments to to push these efforts forward yeah that's that will be a crazy world to live in with when we have these synthetic cells because it's yeah it's it's kind of hard to wrap my brain around what that means are they machines are they real because they are functioning living yeah chemistry working in coordination is it right? Is it wrong? The morality of it? It's all kinds of... That's interesting, too, because who knows how those cells will, will be used. But I think all of this is inevitable. I think to some degree, it's moving slow enough that we have time to adjust and think about these problems. And if it's going too fast, maybe there's an argument there to slow down a little bit so we can kind of hash some of this stuff out. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um. On the topic of just cell, creating a cell in, in life and DNA, we just had the Perseverance rover land on Mars. And one of its big missions is to search for microbe, microbial life on the surface of Mars. And I think, you know, when I talk to people in my circle, which most of them are not in, connected to biology or life science at all, they, they don't understand the significance of finding life on another planet because when I explain to them, like DNA is inherently unique to Earth, like how life comes together and the central dogma. But it's very possible that in Mars or other parts of the universe, life came together using a totally different tactic or methodology. And if we're able to capture that, that may reveal, such as building a cell, we may discover new, new ways of how life can organize itself. And, and I think that's fascinating. Do you follow that at all? You, are, are you uh, excited about that? <laughs> slightly. I was, I was in the lab the other day and my supervisor came running in with the live stream saying, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. <laughs> but uh, we work with this microorganism called DRAD or uh, D-radiodurans. And it's super cool because you can hit it with all this UV and it just decimates its its chromosomes into small little fragments. And then it just takes them all and puts them back together. And you can watch wow. this happen over time. And it's it's just incredible. So yeah, it's like a the, repair mechanism, some kind of repair mechanism. Yeah, it has such a high number or copies of it. It just has all these templates to repair itself. And then it can fix its genomes. And so one of the graduate students in our lab, uh, Stephanie Brumwell, she works with that. And she's trying to make a system, I think, to help, uh, what's it called, terrestrialize, uh, make make the soil on Mars more livable. Oh, that's and, interesting. Right, so there's also that, that approach. In addition to finding those life forms, uh, converting them into more of our <laughs> environment. <laughs> Infecting think, the planet with, uh, with our microbes. Yeah, I think finding life forms that are so different than ours will, will really help open our minds on what is possible and what we could make here on earth uh, as living systems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just get excited about the idea of like a sample coming back to earth and then we try to like, I don't even know how, I guess we try to first look at it under a microscope is probably the first thing we would do to like, does this thing even have a nucleus and does it even have chromosomes? <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's still even the discussion on, on what we could classify as life or what, what people could agree on. Is this even a life form? 
like that's that's a great question too like this they, thing they can't even agree on what a virus if that's alive or not right so. yeah yeah that's a good point at some point when you get down to the elemental elements of a thing it's sort of like how does conscious consciousness emerge from just matter or is consciousness its own thing somehow yeah does it exist outside of this yeah <laughs> yeah and that's a whole other philosophical like conversation but it, it is very much related to this idea of like what is life and when you yeah. get down to it's like it's all the same elements in the periodic table you just arrange them in the right way and they have these functions yeah like does it just matter that there's some sort of turnover or reaction happening and that eventually that reaction leads to enough accumulation that divides into two similar things is that life i don't know it's it's a it's a fun thing to sort of do these thought experiments with <laughs> it's a, it's really just like a kind of kind of amazing um so how is your research going and have you made like some headway in, into this idea of whole um mitochondrial genome transformation yeah so i I finished kind of the first phase of my thesis, which was cloning these genomes in my model systems, E. coli and Acerevisiae, bacteria and yeast, and showing that I can engineer them pretty quick uh, without DNA synthesis and create new iterations of it. So you were able to take a mitochondrial genome DNA and, uh, and manipulate it in some way and then have a bunch of other yeast clone it, basically make copies of that same yeah, so I extracted the DNA from the algae cell. And then in, in one approach, for instance, it's called uh, TAR cloning, transformation-associated recombination cloning. And you take the whole mitochondrial molecule and it, with a unique cut site, you break it open and you develop that vector backbone, which you had talked about, with homology to where oh, you it adjacent. It attaches onto the, the, the end that you use to, to cut. Right. And then you transform that into yeast and yeast through homologous uh, recombination and repair will put those two fragments together and you have a whole mitochondrial genome with your backbone inserted inside of it. Wow. Okay. So they, I guess you'd say they ligate, ligate those ends together. Well, not, not exactly ligation, but through uh, homologous recombination. Okay. The, and then after that, I used PCR to amplify the fragments with homology to each other. And with 10 of those fragments, by PCRing them, you get a whole bunch of them. And then again, you can transform those into the yeast and clone another version of the mitochondrial genome. So if you wanted to insert something with one of the fragments, you would just leave out the homology and add your, your DNA to be inserted with the homology to where you want to insert it. Got it, got it, got it. Just add your your DNA with the with ends on them to match with the, yeah. the where the cuts were on the uh, underlying uh, construct. Make yeah, makes sense. How did you how do you take just like high level mm-hmm. when you extract the the mitochondrial DNA from the algal algae cell? How do you separate that DNA from the nuclear DNA that comes from the cell? Yeah, so the the main way that this was done in our experimental design was through that homologous recombination. We isolated all the DNA of the algae cells in agarose plugs. It's a it's another method, but uh, it keeps everything stabilized, and so that way nothing breaks or shears and snaps. So you grow a bunch of al- algae, you create these 
grow them on uh, on agar media well you grow them either on agro media or on or agar media sorry or in liquid and then you take this low melting point agar so it's not so hot it's like 50 degrees and it captures this highly concentrated number of algal cells just inside a very small agarose plug got it guys so you're you you kind of create this dense collection of algal cells in a plug and then you just blast them with aggressive uh, buffers to blow the cell up essentially and okay everything away okay so that's not too unlike how like i'm doing the mini mini prep which is using enzymes and and lysing the cell to release the dna so you're kind of doing the same thing yeah exactly. and so but but now you have all of this dna mix and match between yes. the my, mitochondrial and the the nuclear dna and so when you transform that into the yeast, you're transforming some of the nuclear, some of the chloroplast DNA, some of the mitochondrial DNA into all these yeast cells, but only ones with mitochondrial, whole mitochondrial DNA, as well as your vector backbone homology will recover a circularized plasma because of that homology sequence. Ah, because the way that you got it, and I'm trying to, there's a missing link here that I'm missing, and mm-hmm. that is you must be doing something to prepare the yeast cells like you're you're yeah. enzymatically cutting them or something so that you can then paste in this. We're giving them a, a, what's called a spheroplast treatment. So you hit them with these enzymes called zymolyase and uh, HLZ, lysozyme. And so it degrades the cell wall and you're trying to catch them where if you put them in sorbitol, which stabilizes them, they're not blowing up so much, they're not popping. But if they go in water, the osmotic change between the difference between the solution and the cell causes the cells just to lice. And so you're looking for this happy medium where they're not blowing up too much, but they're, they've lost their cell wall. And then that allows for the DNA to more easily get in uh, Ah. inside the cell. Cool. And so that's part of the research that you've been doing, which is you've got to find these titers for how much of the sugar and how much so that you're maintaining this delicate balance of, you don't want to completely like destroy the cell altogether. Yeah, a, a lot of these methods were kind of optimized uh, previously, but putting it into your own hands and trying to get that experience and learn how to do it, it's, it's difficult. I think the best in our lab so far is two tries at spheroplasting before a successful transformation. Wow. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's a great data point for me because I could probably do that uh, probably multiple orders of magnitude is how long, how much longer it'll take me to, <laughs> to, to DM to get... me and I'll help you out. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, man, for sure. So, okay. You've got another year of, of research. You sounds like you've already got two manuscripts. Uh, it looks like you're well on your way to doing some incredible work in your career. And so I'm really excited to, to follow you on that. Um, what are just like right now in your world, what gets you excited? What are some of the research projects either going on around you or just in the world that make you optimistic and excited about where the world of synthetic, synthetic biology is headed? Uh, we have a lot of great team members in our lab with just incredible projects, and they're doing incredible things. I, I don't know how much I can say about their research without kind of giving too much away, I guess but there'll be very interesting things coming out of the Karish lab soon. I know I should have another paper uh, later this year, maybe in the fall, and it'll be related to conjugation and really making a, a better process to conjugate to different types of cells and things like that. So 
in, in terms of my thesis, that, that helps uh, progress that DNA delivery method, as I was saying. But uh, worldwide, what I'm most excited about, I think, is all the different startups and uh, creative people taking on different challenges and using synthetic biology to solve them, as well as the international collaborations like Build a Cell, which are doing really incredible things. Well, that's very cool. Ryan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I, I, I really got to geek out and nerd out on some of the, like, the more technical stuff, which is a lot of fun. So I really appreciate you, you know, diving into that stuff and helping educate a, a layman for a lot of these things. Um, super, super awesome to talk to you and to hear about the research you're, you're doing and to learn about algae. Uh, you kind of blew my mind with the mitochondrial DNA. I, I didn't know about all of that. So that's pretty awesome. And I think people, I, I think a lot of people don't know about that. So hopefully they can learn something from this and get excited about it and start to follow that, that emerging yeah. field. Hopefully we get the chance to talk again. And I, I, look I would love to really promoting it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right. Well, have a good one. And I appreciate you being on the show, man. We'll, we'll definitely talk soon. Thanks, Josh. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.